um, we're um, sitting zazen. I'm just looking around to see who all's here. I recognize many of you, and um, it's great to have. Um, um, yeah, it's great to have you all here with us um, this evening. And if any of you feel comfortable being on camera, please feel um, welcome to do that. Um, so um, my name is Michael McCord. I'm the um, the director here at City Center and um, wanted to um, yeah connect with you a little bit this evening around the subject that might be on a lot of people's minds. Um, and that has to do with um, truth and um, propaganda. And what is, um, what, what is truth? And essentially, um, what is it to be seeking truth in an age that feels like there's a lot of propaganda? Um, what is that? And so that's what I want to talk about this evening. Um, so I would bet that many of you, if not most of you, if not maybe even all of you, have been in a romantic relationship at some point in time in your life, whether it be a, a long-term thing or a short-term thing. And um, if anyone who's ever been in a romantic relationship or even just in a family, <laughs> You know what it's like to have someone that you love and care about think in some sort of way that you just cannot understand how they can think that way. Um, and if you stay in a romantic relationship long enough, you will eventually think this thought at some point in time. And that thought is, how can they think like that? Now, I don't know about you, but I felt that way a lot recently in regard to a lot of things that I've seen. And through our relationships, we learn um, what it is to be almost incredulous at times um, that someone can think a certain way. Obviously things are like this and they think like that. And it can be something that's little teeny tiny. It can be something that's really big, but how can people think like that? And what is it to seek truth? Am I right? Do I have truth? What should be my approach to this? How can I quit being bombarded and confused even by the amount of things that are going on around me that feel like they are not true? And is there anything that I can do that deals with this feeling of confusion, of how do people think like this? And I think that this is how it is over here. What is it that's going to actually help the planet? What is it that's going to actually help our relationships, our city, our country, our Zen center? What is it to seek truth in the age of propaganda? Well, first off, I want to start with the word seek and how do we seek? Because part of it has to do with the setup. The setup of how... Um, I guess you'd say fixed I am. I was reading this book recently um, that I really liked because it kind of messed a little bit in my head with this um, concept of um, me being sure about things. Now, if there's one thing that people jokingly say that you can always count on, it is gravity. You know, uh, gravity is a sure thing. And it almost seems like, you know, people agree on gravity. Okay, that's, that's like a given. And then I was reading this book, and it showed me how the people don't actually agree on gravity. And I thought, now that's pretty interesting. Um, There's a book here, which actually I took part of the title of this talk from, 
but it's called, But What If We're Wrong? And it's written by Chuck Klosterman. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but um, he wrote a book called, But What If We're Wrong? And he starts off with things that you think are totally set in stone. And then it starts to create a different frame of mind when you start to get into it. And there's a little section here I just want to read. Um, and this is about gravity. And when I came to this part, um, it really made me smile. But um, this is quoting um, Brian Greene, a theoretical physicist at Columbia. And he says, there is a very, very good chance that our understanding of gravity will not be the same in 500 years. In fact, that's one arena where I think that, that most of our contemporary evidence is circumstantial and that the way we think about gravity will be very different. For nearly 200 years, Isaac Newton had gravity down. There was almost no change in our thinking until 1907. And then from 1907 to 1915, Einstein radically changes our understanding of gravity. No longer is gravity just a force, but a warping of space and time. And now we realize quantum mechanics must have an impact on how we describe gravity within very short distances. So that's a whole lot of words, but the long and short of it is, here's people that are really smart. Here's something that seems really basic. It's gravity. And, oh, wait a second. No, we, we really got that wrong. And then they continue on and say, and now there are folks inspired by these findings who are trying to rethink, rethink gravity itself. They suspect gravity might not even be a fundamental force, but an emergent force, which means that gravity might just be a manifestation of other forces not a force itself, but the peripheral result of something else, which we don't know what that is. And that is what people are currently debating in regard to gravity. And I thought gravity was a sure thing, but that's something that is apparently a moving target. And part of this seeking truth has to do with the frame of mind that we are in. In just reading some of the book, I realized that maybe some of the ground that I was standing on wasn't so solid and it made me just a little bit more open. And that's something that we do a lot in Zen is we try to keep the door cracked open. We try to do things that help us keep a flexible mind. And it's not to say that we don't do our best with what we know. And it's not to say we don't try to understand. But if everything around me is reifying my universe, then I'm in a limited place. And if I haven't learned how to entertain what other people who don't think like me um, are saying in any sort of way, then um, I'm very limited in regard to what I can actually see. There's a statement, I think it's by Thomas Paine. I was trying to look it up earlier today, but I remember the statement. I think it comes from Thomas Paine's Common Sense Pamphlets back in the 18th century. Um, and um, but the statement is the, the measure of a man's or a person's intellect is the scope of what they can entertain without having to digest it. The scope of a man's intellect, uh, the, the measure of a man's intellect is the scope of what he can entertain without having to digest it. And I started to think about what it is that I have around me. You know, I noticed um, a while back that um, I, I've subscribed to the New Yorker for years and that um, I, it, it eventually got to the place where I couldn't hear the bias anymore. Now, any magazine, any newspaper has a bias. 
It has a perspective, you know, it has a culture, it has a country, it has a way of actually viewing things. But I read it every week. It's got a whole lot of words. And um, after a period of time, it's the only thing I really had time to read because I was only, you know, reading that. And I got to where I realized I couldn't hear the bias. It was just the way things are. And I said that to one of my friends who had from New York and I knew who loved the New Yorker too. And he looked at me and he said, well, I've agreed with everything the New Yorker said for the last 35 years. <laughs> and that scared me. And so I put it down for six months and didn't read it. And I still think the New Yorker is great, but it has a bias. It has a way of viewing things. And so when I'm thinking of being with somebody else or engaging with something else that has um, other ideas, how open am I? And am I aware of my own bias? Can I be in touch with that? Because oftentimes, you can tell me if you identify with this or not, but I have this, um, this feeling of, um, I guess it starts out with, how can they possibly think like that? Um, what can I possibly say to, to have them think like me? And then um, how come they're not thinking like, that, like me? That makes me upset. I don't know if you've ever been through that trajectory in your life, but that's, that's something that happens to me just like in, a, in, a, in an instant, you know, and it's just like a feeling of, you know, maybe if I can find that golden sentence and I can say it to that person and then they will hear it and they will think like me. And this, of course, is folly um, because we all, we, we've all done that experiment with ourselves. I mean, how many times in my life have I, have I said to myself, you know, Michael, you need to do X. And this is something I'm totally convinced of already, okay? Um, you know, you need to um, work out more or lose weight or go to sleep earlier or quit using so much media or be nicer to people or smile more or be more positive or whatever it is that you have, have told yourself. So you're convinced I should do this thing, you know? And then noticing how it doesn't always work. In fact, a lot of times I say to myself, okay, I should really try to do this. And then um, it still doesn't work. And that's me trying to convince me to, to, to take on an action that I'm totally in, in step with. I, I've already totally bought in, okay? And, and, and how, how, how often do I succeed at, at that long term? So if I'm thinking about my odds of trying to convince somebody else to not only think differently, but then to maybe even behave differently or engage the world differently, what are the odds that I'm going to find the sentence that's going to work with that? What is actually going to reach them? Well, that's what I want to really focus on is um, what is it that I can do? Because number one, I realized that maybe I am the subject of my own propaganda and my own mind's narratives and stories. And so I need to hold those things a little bit more loosely. And then how can I actually be with other individuals so that they feel like they can let their guard down and maybe listen to me a little bit? And where can we actually have that sharing? Where, where can we actually go back and forth? curiosity. Now, you've probably heard this before, you know, one of the ways to really connect with other individuals is to um, be curious. What happens when you're absolutely not curious about what they have to say? You know, I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm talking to somebody, they're saying stuff, 
And I'm just like, I'm so not curious about this. Um, I think that sometimes curiosity gets a really, really strange name or gets a strange reputation. Curiosity is not something that just lands on you um, out of nowhere um, unless you're already interested. If you aren't interested, you can actually stick with a person and learn to be curious. There is something about everyone and everything that has something to it that you haven't thought of before. They arrived with different words and uh, with a different body and a different mind in that moment. And so they arrived there through thinking different things. And sometimes if you stick with something a little bit and make an effort rather than, mm, I hope I'm curious. Okay, I hope I'm curious. I hope I'm gonna get curious. Okay, they've been talking for two or three minutes. I am still not curious. I hope eventually I get curious. No, it's, it's not gonna happen. It, 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 you, you, it's something that actually has to be worked with and has to be turned over intentionally um, if it's not actually coming. And to be able to hone in on something that someone is saying or learning to adopt a phrase like, you know, but what is it I'm not seeing? But what is it I could learn? Is there something for me to learn here? It could be, it could be something as blatant as um, this is how not to do something. Or it could be like, hmm, I've never thought of it that way before. That doesn't hit me as something that's true, but I have never had that thought before. That is interesting. And then to see what it is to actually entertain something without having to digest it. The scope of a person's intellect is, uh, the, the measure of a person's intellect is the scope of what they can entertain without having to digest it. What is it to entertain something? There's a tradition in one of the Native American cultures, I believe it was in the Northwest in Washington, and I forget the exact tribe, um, but in the culture, if you wanted to bring up something as a different way for the tribe to function, you had to be able to present your idea to the tribe, and then you had to present it from six other perspectives. It was a way of saying that your idea is great and we aren't going to disrespect it, but can you show flexible mind? Can you actually demonstrate that there's other ways that could be viewed, other things that could be held here? Is there some other way that this could be brought about? And letting curiosity actually build through that sort of activity and realizing that Truth in many ways is incredibly relative. Now in, in Zen, if you have um, you know, read Zen literature or any of the, um, the kind of the basics of, of Soto Zen, you know that we talk about truth in two different ways, the relative and the absolute. And I won't get too much into that today, but um, the, the, in, a, in a very basic sense, um, if you were to look at a wave on the ocean, and you talk about the, um, the relative truth or the conventional truth, the surface level truth that most people would base things on, you would say that is a wave and it's made up of water. And if you're looking at the absolute truth, you would say that that is the form of a wave, but it is empty. And you wouldn't say it because you would experience it. Because once it gets into language, then it becomes a du duality. 
but you would actually be one with that wave and you would actually see that wave as the millions and billions of little tiny parts that come to make it up everything from the gravity to the the sun to the the water to the way that the ocean floor was churning to everything that had to do with every single speck of atom that's in that it's it's not a solid object it's not an actual wave it's completely empty and so you have the relative and the absolute and so much of what we're pointing at has to do with things that are the relative truth the truth that's on the surface, the things that we can see, the things that we um, universally agree on, if you will. And so in realizing that, we realize that truth in many ways um, shifts over time. And there are some things that are absolute, which is pure experience. And there's other things like, for instance, have you ever heard the, the truth of the Zen koans, where, um, you know, two monks do something in a in a monastery and then one month monk has a revelation because somebody you know puts their their soup in a their, their spoon in the, in, the, in the soup and says something crazy and then another monk like has an awakening and they're like aha um truth and um you know a lot of the the zen koans that get um passed down have to do with that aha moment where someone becomes enlightened you know but, you know, if you did that same thing, you know, putting the, the soup in the spoon and saying the thing, and you did that like in 10 other environments, it, it wouldn't really matter because it was just, it just had to do with that specific environment that it was unfolding in. And I think that that's a lot of what the Zen teachings are trying to give us is an understanding of how much um, what it is that we're seeing shifts and how much of our perspective is limited. And so from that perspective, it allows us to have more curiosity toward the things that we don't understand or toward the things that we don't agree with. And that doesn't mean that we have to agree with things or that you would never get into an argument with someone. These sort of things happen. But how I am holding something, how holding curiosity as an intention, when somebody feels that I respect them, and their words, when I treat them as though I might have something to learn from them, their guard comes down. And they're more able to hear me. And we're more able to get past surface level differences and get to something that's a little bit more likely for us to at least reach the other person a little bit. Can people hear me? Can people hear me? I mean, I ask that question oftentimes about how sure I am about things. And what's the scope? You know, I talk about the, um, the audience in marketing of who, who, who are you actually reaching and who can hear you? Is there just like a, a narrow window of people who can hear me? What is it that allows me to be able to reach other individuals? A lot of it has to do with how I hold other individuals in my head and in my heart. A lot of it is that nonverbal communication that we've all heard about that comes through. Even in texts, you can follow somebody, you know, texting, you can follow somebody on Twitter, you can follow somebody. And over a period of time, you can get their tone, their attitude, their vibe that's beyond the words. 
and you start to get to know the person. Can people hear me? What's the scope of my reach? Do I have that flexible mind where we can cut through and reach each other? Because these ideas that are on the surface, and there are things that are lies, and there are things that are untruths that are out there. But there's a lot less that's actually fixed solid truth than what it appears. And if you think back about things that you've thought of in the past that were solid, that were true, that maybe morphed over time, maybe some way that you thought when you were 10, and then some other way you thought when you were 20, maybe some way you thought when you were in college, and then something you came to see a little bit differently down the road. When we sit Zazen like we did earlier, we have the ideas coming forth and we have the things coming forth that are perspectives. It's my narrative up there on that wall, like a movie. And it's just playing my movie on that wall. Thought after thought after thought. And it's so easy for me to reify my story. And for my propaganda to become the way that the world is. And I can start listening to other people from a standpoint of fear because it doesn't align with the story. And Zen holds that the more we can see through our own story without disrespecting it, but without holding on to it too tightly, the more we can start to hear other people, the more we can start to see what's going on in front of us. I can have a thought that pops up into my head, and it can be the thing that that person said last week. And I can sit there and I can, okay, that's all that happened. The thought of that thing that person said last week, or I can add something to it. I think they said that because of thus and such. And I know how their mother probably was. And this is, you know, I, I can run with the, the story. I can analyze it, or I can just be with pure experience, which is, hmm, that's what the person said last week. And I noticed that my stomach twitched a little bit. Can I sit right in the middle of pure experience without having to run my narrative and to write my own propaganda, to write my own story? It's so that we can see. It's so that we can hear. It's so that we can be with things and not be afraid of them if they don't align with the way that we're thinking so that other people might be able to hear us as well. So that people on this planet might reach each other so that people might be able to see through each other's propaganda and bring down some of the walls that are between people on this planet. Having curiosity is an intention, first about our own narrative, first about our own propaganda, working with that and not disrespecting it, realizing that our fears are there for a reason. They were there to take care of us, they were there to protect us. But if we run with those fears, they can cause delusion. And they can cause us to want to be too sure and too certain, hold on to things a little bit too tightly. In Zen, we always start with ourselves. We always start with what's going on here. And then we want to seek to be one who hears and communicates in a way that tamps down the narrative of fear on this planet. 
We want to seek to be the one who hears and communicates in a way that tamps down the narrative of fear on this planet. You've probably seen plenty of things that have, have happened in the last year that you don't agree with. But if we do what we're inclined to do, which I talked about earlier, which is for me to basically say, how can you possibly think that way? Okay, now I'm going to try to explain to you how not to think that way. And then I'm going to get upset because you're still thinking that way. That is going to tie me in knots. And it's going to make me feel unempowered. And it's going to make me feel hopeless. And what the, the path that Zen is trying to give us is for us to be able to work with ourselves to see our own stories and to see what we're telling, to be able to be curious and to be with other individuals and to be able to find something there that we can connect with without having to necessarily digest it. So that we help other individuals feel that they have some sort of a way for them to work through their fears. And we can learn how to hear other people and we can learn how to communicate with them in a way that tamps down the narratives that are based on fear. So that's just a little bit um, that I wanted to share this evening in regard to um, our um, practice. It's a, it's a core of, of Zen practice in regard to our relationship with others and our own narratives. And um, when I read books like the, the one I was talking about before, um, but what if we're wrong? Um, it's not to sow doubt in myself. It's just to open and crack the door a little bit, especially where I might have things shut. And so I'm curious to hear from you. Um, we're going to move into the Q&A um, period of time. And um, I'm curious to hear from you um, questions that you have things that you're dealing with um, around, um, you know, propaganda, around um, stories, around things that are being spread. And, um, and what, what I'm talking about here, um, 